0: Hey everyone, John and Andrew here.
1: Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, the boredom behind greatness.
0: The ability to respond.
1: And becoming more holy.
0: This is Obstacle Course. Boom! (laughs) Boom! You know, if if any episode needed a boom, it was this one. Yeah, Adam is
1: very deserving of the boom. He brought the boom. He he brought a lot. He brought (laughs) a lot of energy he and he as he always does i've met him a few times now and man the guy packs a punch but he also is he brings the other side of the coin just as well in in the deep thinking in the intellectual questioning and yeah and he's an olympic level athlete all right you know he has been at that level. He's not currently training, but he's still in pretty good shape.
0: No, and one of the reasons we brought him on was to promote his excellent new book, which is the Responsibility Ethic.
1: The Responsibility Ethic, and we today, Jean, learned <laughs> what that really means. Yeah. So you said the ability to respond yes, in think. the little intro, mm-hmm. and what, what? So what is? What did we both learn today about the meaning of responsibility? Well, because
0: we just assumed it meant like, you know, being a responsible father, a responsible business owner, a responsible husband, blah, 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 responsible. Yeah. The, but the, the whole thing the is... The
1: tiresome <laughs> nature of responsibility, <laughs> The way right? I just said it, yeah, dull yeah. and kind of like you have to
0: do it. It's like and, it shackles. Yeah. Yeah. Good shackles. Well, you know, this was the opposite. It was very freeing. We actually have the ability to respond in every situation.
1: Yeah. Responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Hmm.
0: So cool, eh, folks? Yeah. (laughs) It only took us half the episode to figure that out. Well,
1: and it makes the (laughs) the book title that much more alluring because, oh, there's so much, there's more here.
0: Yeah. I did feel bad when I admitted to him right before recording that I hadn't read the book.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It was a bold move. No. Do you remember what his response was? Fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No,
0: he was kidding. For the record, Adam is one of the nicest guys I've met. But uh, <laughs> it's funny because you know, as as we get more seasoned in our podcast, these are things we should probably do. when we read the, when, read the books? When we the bring guests. on the guests? Yeah, the guests yeah. that are coming on to promote the books. And to his credit, Andrew probably read about ninety percent of it.
1: Yeah, I, I read the I read the book. Um, yeah, and
0: I listened to a podcast he was on, so I, I did have enough to go on. Yeah, but, uh, I did feel bad. So, sorry, Adam.
1: <laughs> once, John, once we have all of these sponsors that are just waiting out there for us, yeah. we're going to be able to actually invest yeah. our our time that isn't just our spare time into doing things like research, <laughs>
0: reading, <laughs> researching the guests that we have on. Yeah, yeah, or just having low, lower pro- profile guests so we don't have to. But no, I no. say let's keep going. Yeah, dream. and uh, we're. Ho- I'm waiting out for the audible book as well. Adam is going to record it, and uh, he has a great, vo- great voice, folks.
1: Yeah, you'll hear a variety of different yeah. accents and intonations from Adam on the episode today. Yeah, he's a he's a soft speaker until he's not. Oh my god. <laughs>
0: There's one part we're going to try and edit down just for volume, but but you'll you'll know when it comes.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and uh, I'm sure Adam will uh, laugh when he hears it. Yeah. But uh yeah, we we got pretty crazy in the studio today.
1: It yeah, we did. <laughs> things got things got weird?
0: Things got a bit weird and and we went down roads we hadn't anticipated.
1: Yeah. And we start on a road that is it, we didn't see coming and it, no. it's it's wonderful. So I think, I think you'll get a kick it's out of it. It's a
0: road where I attempted to to uh, do the A&W theme song and got it confused with <laughs> the Pink Panther anthem. <laughs> yeah. I realize I don't have a real good tone, so oh well.
1: No. I knew that already. No, no lies <laughs> out.
0: <laughs> and yet you still made me, allowed me to go down the road. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy the episode, folks. It's another doozy.
2: The
3: Obstacle Course Podcast, starring John and Andrew, <laughs> recorded in my brother's bedroom. <laughs> P- please read your book
0: like that when you do record <laughs> it. Yeah.
3: i was just trying to put on my best, your CBC voice. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Well, well, that was or, pretty good. Yeah, or that was more like your. Do you remember Jürgen Goff? You're probably old enough to remember him.
1: I'm not. Or. No. Or just not... And to, just because you said that... No, I don't remember him. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> you
0: okay, do well. not old enough.
3: He's got a great name. Yeah, Jürgen Goff. It he is. had this classical music. And he's like... Hi, yeah. I'm Jürgen Goff, and today we're going to be listening to a great sonata of Bach, recorded by the St. Petersburg Symphony Orchestra.
2: <laughs> there
3: it and is. You just, were, you just listen to it, and you're like falling asleep. Like, Don't listen
1: to that while driving. Right? Right. Were, you, were you just there for his voice, or, or are you a purveyor <laughs> of classical music as well?
3: Uh, I, I played classical music when I was in high school. Did you really? Yeah, was a tubist. Tuba. Yeah,
0: I played the trumpet, and Andrew played the
3: euphonium.
1: Oh, euphonium!
3: <laughs> I <laughs> always loved the euphonium guy. Yeah, he, bed, he had lots of energy. Yeah. yeah, and you could on the marches like totally. I,
1: I was first enamored with the euphonium because the the band teacher walked in playing the old A and W root beer song oh, on the euphonium. I, I was that. like, oh, it's me. That's mine. Is that the? yeah oh no that's That's a pink (laughs) (laughs) what is the A.W. one again it's kind of like it was something like that yeah there it
2: is
1: Oh, I'm so yeah! Glad memories rolling well, right now. But I never, I never figured out how to play it myself. No, because I that was in grade six that that I uh, fell in love, and I fell out of love by the end of grade seven. Oh,
3: okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I was
1: uh,
3: five years of tube, tubing. Tubing, tube, tubist. In... I think
0: you could say tubing. Tubing. I did anything else. I yeah. tubed for <laughs> <laughs> for five
3: years. I actually had a I had a slight gig with the local hockey team. I grew up in London, Ontario. And I'd bring my tuba to the hockey game. (laughs) Really? Solo. Solo. I'd I'd have a painter suit, and I'd run up and down the aisles with this (laughs) giant tuba, and I'd go, (laughs) and uh, I'd play the N.W. song, or um, the Darth Vader song. Nice. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, something,
3: something like that. that right? something. Yeah, pretty close. That cool. was uh, that, that's Dragnet, I think. Is it? <laughs> yeah, you know, what? I, I'm not going to
0: volunteer to do tunes anymore. I think I'm tone deaf. <laughs>
1: yeah, we did um, reminisce on our our lack of musical talent oh, on a on an episode a few a yeah. few months ago, and now it's on full display. Yeah. Mm. Well. Uh, that was a great and you know, unexpected place to start. <laughs> you start, start right? yeah.
3: If you know, we can edit this too. If, yeah. But you know what? I Usually don't think we, we keep should. It no, in. No, no. This, this is we the should. best. This is the best part, the best part. to start. You know, yeah, for for all the listeners out there and, and Jurgen Goff, when you're listening to this, yeah, you know, lots of lots of fan love.
1: Well, Adam, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and our time is up, so we didn't get to the book, okay. but... <laughs> okay, it was great uh, talking
3: with you. <laughs> uh, <awesome. clears throat> yeah, so we talked about Jürgen Goff, euphoniums, <laughs> and uh, it, it's been a great podcast. Yeah, well... The Responsibility Ethic. Yeah, the dig Responsibility Ethic.
1: So in, in the copy that you signed for me, which I very much appreciated when we met it, uh, maybe six weeks ago or so, um, was the obstacles uh to the obstacles may they always be there yes which was perfect for us and and a a great place to start and we thought we would actually start in a similar way as your book does with the moment that your your boat capsized as you were right in the heart of the bermuda triangle yeah so we're we're changing the tone of the podcast a little bit here tone but um if you want to take us through that moment and recreate it as as you wish
3: as best as best I can <clears throat> well picture this you're well we're in a space it's smaller than this little tiny room we're recording the podcast in and uh, uh, less than a hundred square feet the, About three sheets of plywood is your living space with three other people tiny boat you've been out in this boat for 73 days the boat has been... You know, it's it's been actually quite a transcendental experience. It's been connective, meditative. Now, there's been moments of terror while you're out there. Big waves pick you up and they smash you around. Other times, it's just it's glass and it's calm. And I'd say by far the best moments in the ocean were the times when you're at the middle of the night and you're looking at the stars. It's contemplative. You're alone, you stop, you drink some tea, uh, and and you're just, you're thinking, wow, I'm I'm just so lucky to be here. I'm lucky to be alive.
1: The stars must have been unreal out there too, right? Like talk about no um, uh, light pollution. Zero light pollution.
3: Well, and it was ironic because you'd be staring at the stars, and at times you could see the International Space Station zoom overhead. Wow. And when we were in the middle of the ocean, we were closer to... Uh, you know, the men and women up in the international space station than we were to anyone else wow. on land which was wow funny H-
1: have you watched one strange rock it's a documentary on netflix and no. it, it's um narrated by a number of astronauts oh really and on their perspective of earth so it's and it's really really well done the cinematography is incredible so it, that, that might be a rock. cool um and and uh, Will Smith is like the the mm. kind of groundskeeper um, who who run, who plays the middle role between the astronauts and and the viewers. So it's okay. it's really really good. And and I mean, you're talking about perspectives, and, and that might be a, an interesting one to to look into.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, I'd, that sounds like something I definitely like. Although I've canceled my Netflix. So
1: like, I, I kind of love how you how you
0: got into this, agreeing to <laughs> row across the Atlantic. You just kind of met, met Jordan, right? Yeah, I and met Jordan. Talked over a weekend, and uh, and he we, had kind of tried it before, right? With yeah. mixed, mixed results.
3: Well, it came. You know, we're yeah. here in Victoria, BC, yeah. and there's a boat maker in town uh, by the name of Harold Owen, and he makes these uh, dory style boats. So after the Olympics was over, I um, I called him up and I said, "Hey, Harold, can." you know, can I have a free boat? I just won an (laughs) Olympic gold medal. And he said, "Uh, no, I I, I, I don't have enough money to give you a free boat, but uh, maybe we can trade for things. And so I helped him out with some promotions, and then we started doing these races, these Dory-style races up and down the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went down to San Francisco, and that's where I met uh, Jordan. Uh, Jordan uh, had come, Harold brought Jordan down to San Francisco to do this race as well. Jordan had rowed across the uh, the North Atlantic. He went from New York to England. Took wow. seventy two days. They didn't pack enough food, <laughs> which is <laughs> part of his story. So they they lost a lot of weight. You know, 15, 20, 30 pounds wow. uh, per person uh, going across the ocean. Which day did they
0: realize that they didn't pack enough food?
3: <laughs> uh, it was. It was about a third of the way through. Oh, wow. And the guy who had um, instead of packing enough food for four people, he'd packed enough food for one person, I think. And so he just he'd messed up the calculations somehow and
0: That's a pretty big mistake. Yeah. Oh me?
3: yeah. It was well. They, if they, he's listening,
0: sorry, it could happen to anybody, buddy. But, <laughs> but I mean, that's a big mistake.
1: Yeah, no, it was a big mistake. That was,
3: there was a big conflict on board, and uh, they had to, for sure, definitely had to overcome that.
1: Um, they didn't end up eating him.
3: No, they didn't. <laughs> I was <laughs> about to say, <laughs> it was "Alive at sea, one man gets the food. Little does he know, he's about to become the food." Man,
0: you're dialed in with his voice, yeah. man. You're ready. Record this book yeah. tomorrow.
3: That'd
2: be a good Dateline documentary, yeah. too. Yeah. It would be.
3: And, and so meeting Jordan, Jordan, Jordan was the, um, the stimulus for the adventure uh, because... Without him, I would have never thought about rowing across the ocean. I would have never actually wanted to do it. I, it in my background as an Olympic athlete, I'd heard of people rowing boats across the ocean. I thought that's kind of silly. Mm-hmm. That's stupid. Why would you ever <laughs> want to do that? Yeah. Like that's uh, that just seems what like that just doesn't seem interesting at all.
0: There's no gold medal for that.
3: There's no gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then it was, yeah. there, there isn't, but I'd say at the end of the day, that was kind of, well, that was probably one of the motivators right. that it was, yeah, exactly. for me, it was, you know, it was about the adventure and the exploration. And that's what actually drew me in. Mm-hmm. When I met Jordan, I remember specifically, we were, we were rowing around in the San Francisco Bay and there was a dead whale uh, floating around. It was a, a big, you know, it was a pilot whale. So not that big, but it was there and we were, we were looking at it. and We were poking it with our oars, and then he was telling us, telling me stories of all these crazy creatures we saw when he saw when he was going across the ocean. And you know, often when we tell these stories, <clears throat> we, because it's most dramatic, we talk about the most dramatic points, which is capsizing the Bermuda Triangle or getting s- smashed around by a wave. Or, um, but there's you know so much of the. The, the time on the ocean is just time outdoors time that's reflective and connective. It's, it's like a camping trip or a hunting trip with your buddies and you're, you're outside, you're outdoors. N- nothing matters. The weather is very pleasant. You're very present. It, and that, that conversation was the, the first time that I thought, huh, you know, going across the ocean would actually be fun. is you, you, to a certain extent you have to pay the price you know you have to pay the price of of the risk you have to pay the price of putting yourself in the face of of some disaster if you want to have you know, if you want to get to the other side and have this this connective pleasing experience and and it's a <clears throat> a philosophy i talk about briefly in in the book is that you have to pay the tax if you want to have you know these you know, divine experiences mm. and yeah. yeah love that
1: and and I was really curious about that and and ah. we can get to the moment of, of capsize yeah. um, when we do but it's it's really that's a a, a super interesting moment and, and captivating but the more important thing is is the why uh, of the journey and i'm I'm really curious about what what made the the reward. Mm. What made that reward more valuable than, than the costs? What like what was that driving factor? You mentioned adventure, um, and exploration, and and often when we're exploring out in nature, we're discovering things about ourselves. Yeah. Um. So, w- w- yeah, what created that value that that outweighed the potential cost, potential risk.
3: I'd say exploration was probably very high up there when we're talking about, you know, values that I was looking to express the, you know, I was curious to see what it would be like out there in the middle of the ocean. Uh, I was also curious to see how it would affect me, uh, you know, to be in a little rowboat in completely away from everyone and, you know, what would what would that actually feel like? We have we like we only have so much time on this planet, and this planet is. <clears throat> I was also curious about the like gaining just that, the visceral perspective of, of understanding how truly you know, unique and minuscule and, um, you know, inconsequential you know our our lives are, and to a certain extent, I was I was looking for s- some of that. Um, on the other hand there is a goal there's like there's a goal orientation as well um, i was really keen to you know to build a project that i would have to raise a ton of money for i didn't have a ton of money in the bank you know, being a rower is not a lucrative career <laughs> it's not <laughs> why you get into it hey no yeah <laughs> wasn't it like half a million dollars that you had to raise yeah yeah we had to put together half a million bucks and so i wanted and i knew afterwards i'd be moving into my own Business, I'd be entrepreneurial in mm-hmm. some sort of way, and so I thought this is a great way to to exercise my entrepreneurial mm-hmm. uh, inclination uh, mm-hmm. to to practice some of these skills. You know, to go across an ocean, a lot of people think you need to have you need to be you know strong and fit, but you, um, I think more so you need to be great at building spreadsheets and putting together sales plans and marketing plans and calling people and following up and Mm. putting things in your calendar and making sure you're staying on on target and so there's there's a very heavy administrative load that comes with um, with going out into the wild doing what we did because we weren't just (coughs) going across the ocean we had eight universities we worked with we had eight different uh, studies we were undertaking we reached thirty thousand school kids when we were going across the ocean as well, and we had a very a strong media plan. So it was, it was a very large uh, operation that we were undertaking.
2: Well,
0: part of the fascinating thing of, of your story, Adam, is um, I think a lot of people to to row four thousand miles, they you know the biggest obstacle would be getting in shape to row four thousand miles. But you kind of already had that, so yours was focused on getting some other things in shape perhaps mentally um i'm i'm guessing that the idea of just being in the open ocean was Mm -hmm. terrifying i mean that's probably something you hadn't experienced before and i'm sure that's a reality you had to contend with that you really can't train for that
3: really well yeah we had well we trained for it a certain extent you train Mm -hmm. for the open ocean by going out into the open ocean right so we we had expeditions where we went off of the west coast of washington uh, out into the ocean we circumnavigated vancouver island we got experience with big waves beam waves uh being feeling seasick feeling unsettled um understanding how um how you can survive in these you know uncomfortable conditions And that that was, you know, like I said, that was the tax that you had to pay for these sublime times of, Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, of beauty. But I'd say, you know, adventure like this, it's maybe two and a half percent of your time is terror and two and a half percent of your time is sublime beauty. And the other 95 percent is just benign boring everyday existence and i think that's it's such a perfect metaphor for life too i was gonna
0: say that sounds like the stats for just being a human being (laughs) yeah yeah exactly (laughs) yeah
3: yeah so you yeah and i guess it's it's different in that not a lot of people go out across the ocean so we got to see things like moon bows you know like a rainbow cast by the moon mm. and flying squid and flying fish mm. and uh, whales come up next to us and turtles and seabirds and
0: um, did you find wilson 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 the soccer
1: ball <laughs> <Volleyball>? Wilson,
2: <laughs> no the volleyball no. <laughs> was, uh, okay so I wilson think, still lost
1: i think that was the pacific ocean yeah. <clears throat> oh was it okay yeah. let's see there you so, go yeah mm. sorry folks one ocean off um <laughs> In terms of that 95%, that, that's often the hardest time, That mm-hmm. is the boredom overcoming yeah. the, the feeling of just there's nothing to do or what, what do I do now? So w- what was your experience like in, in dealing with boredom? Well,
3: with that, there, is, there are a couple of gifts of boredom. Mm-hmm. And there there is extreme boredom on the ocean. Which, uh, and the one gift was meditative processing. Yeah, especially right now in our world when we're bored what do we do we you know we listen to a podcast we, <laughs> we, and if you're we,
0: really bored you'll listen to our podcast exactly <laughs>
2: <laughs> or you know, we pick up a book or we yeah.
3: uh, you know we you know there's so many things that we can choose to do yeah. when we're bored um, when we were out there we had a task to do which was keep the boat moving so you'd get to a point where you were bored but you had something menial to do which was row and so you're sitting on your oars and you've been out there for 40 days you know everything about your um your rowing partner because you've talked about every ex-girlfriend <laughs> yeah. and, and sure. every job and yeah. every like teacher you had and, or, and every job you've had and yeah and every everything's quiet and you're rowing along and you're just staring at the the waves and then these thoughts random thoughts that are deep deep buried buried in your mind start to come up mm-hmm. and thoughts uh, in th- that have deep emotion um mm-hmm. uh, attached to them there was a there's an old um <clears throat> As an army vet, and he called it adventurous therapy. He said that's why he would go out and have these these deep wilderness experiences because it gave you the time and space to process deeper emotions that, in ordinary busy life, you don't have the opportunity to um, to deal with. And so, I think that was that was one of the gifts. I remember having uh, this this flashback, and it seems benign even when I when I talk about it. But I, I was seven eight years old and my mom was cooking me eggs and toast and I just had this overwhelming feeling of being like cared for Mm. and you know and nurtured and it was just
2: Mm
3: -hmm. wow I'm you know I didn't really realize how you know grateful I am to my mom and all that she had given to me and again it's it's an obvious insight when it's said but when you feel it to its full extent, it can become pretty impactful, and so mm-hmm. there was a lot of that <clears throat> sort of uh, you know, deep emotional processing and boredom. Another was uh, constantly looking forward and like searching for meaning, uh, because when you're out on the ocean, as much as you're there to say, "Hey, I want to enjoy it," there's there's so much underlying discomfort. You've got cuts on your body and they're not healing because of the ocean water. You've got blisters. You've got some sunburn. The food's not very good. You have underlying seasickness. If it's really wavy and beating, like the wind's beating you got, you're around, you can't take a dump for until like the, the weather sh- calms down, and, and then your in, inside guts will calm down. And uh, <clears throat> like there's these weird sorts of discomforts that you're that you're enduring. So you're. You're fantasizing about, oh, what's, you know, what will happen after this? And it's having this, it's this weird time of process where we'd worked for four years to get to this point. You know, the icing on the cake was roaring across the ocean. And the moment we were rowing across the ocean, we start. everyone was thinking, well, what's, what's the next step? What's that next thing that I'm going to be going for? And what's that, uh, the next, uh, step to this to this puzzle of of life and so that was that was another thought that kept on going through you know through our heads people would say oh when when this is done this is what i'm going to do and uh and you know f- i think for jordan he really wanted to lean into being a writer and uh, a historical fiction writer that's that was his his thing that's his path he's on Marcus uh, decided he wanted to circumnavigate the globe using human power. That's what he's doing right now He's got a YouTube channel out. He's been out for two and a half years So if you want to check him out roots for change, he's putting out videos every week now And he's he's circumnavigating the globe uh, Not using a motor zero motors Uh, Right. He started in Toronto now. He's in India Hmm. uh, enjoying himself there And then, uh, Pat, you know, moved into, um, park services, but for me, I was, I was interested in getting into, uh, strategic planning and, Mm -hmm. uh, leadership training. And that's, you know, that's where I am now.
0: (laughs) I I want to go back to, um, the link you made between like boredom and then having to deal with these thoughts and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like in my experience, just, you know, out of the boat and just being a human, boredom is can often be a quick path to like things like anxiety and obsession mm-hmm. and all these other things right without that focus and so i just kind of wondered um what specific strategies you used to prevent it from going to a dark place going from you know to, to it, go from boredom to starting to fret to starting to yeah. get you know just that sort of the human hamster wheel yeah in in our
3: heads (laughs) yeah the human hamster and i know exactly what you're talking about because it was this irony of being in a rowboat where you're consciously taking the slowest route you possibly can across an ocean is that you get into this boat and you say how fast can we get to the other side right right Right? and that's i think that's just an inclination for all humans you you set a target and then instantly you say oh how fast when am i going to get there and it's this having too much of a destination mindset uh, creates you know, more anxiety in our being. Mm-hmm. And so we would have a conversation and it would almost be humorous where we'd say, well, what are we going to do today? Well, I think the same thing we do every day. <laughs> yeah. Get up, do some <laughs> rowing, eat some food, take a rest. Do some more rowing. Try and take a dump later. You try and take a dump <laughs> if the water's calm. <laughs> if it's really rough, you got to hold on until yeah. the storm passes. Yeah. Uh, well, although, every once in a while, you'd have a rodeo dump. Yeah. <laughs> but that was only if it was like storming for day after day after, yeah. day, after day after day. and oh, The I'm body sure. couldn't hold on. Yeah. But it was... I don't know. <laughs> I, I think this is fascinating. It you is. Know, but yeah. it would be... It, and and I'll, I'll bring it back to the emotional state because I think yeah. emotional and physical and I think Freud Freud talked a lot about how poo and our, our relationship with our with our um, like taking a shit uh, impacted our, our our psychology and our emotional state. Mm-hmm. Like have you go heard of, on, yes, <laughs> go. Ex- <laughs> Are you joking right now? Go well, on. I want to hear more about that. Because <laughs> well, <I'm like>, <laughs> you've heard of, when you say go on, you made me think of Freud. Because Freud would say you're either anal retentive or easygoing. Ah, Have you heard of that? Interesting. So if you're anal retentive, his thought was you, you, you're holding on to your poo and you won't let it out. Interesting. And it's the same thing that you're doing with your emotions. You're ah. holding things inside and you won't let them out. And it creates some toxicity. And then if someone's easygoing, they um, they go and like it's easy to poo. You, if you're easygoing then oh you you have the emotions and you like a you flow goat yeah you, you literally flow yeah yeah you you can flow mm-hmm. and so it was similar on the ocean in that when it was really stormy you would be you'd be being hammered around and it was uncomfortable and it actually really makes me appreciate this calm space that we're in doing this podcast uh because you it would just never, the, the boat would never sit still. Mm. And, uh, you can deal with it for one day, two days. And I remember one day it was about like seven or eight days in a row. It'd just been storm after storm and you can't stand still and you can't relax and you can't, you can't really sleep. You're rolling around when you're sleeping, you're trying to cook some food, but you can't. And I remember getting so angry and just like hitting the boat. and like,
2: fuck, like, why won't you just stay still? <laughs> yeah.
3: And, uh, and mm-hmm. at the same time, it's like it's hard to take a dump. It's mm-hmm. hard to go to the bathroom, and you you, because everything's all tense inside, mm-hmm. and and so there's there's this emotional you know turmoil that you're dealing with as well as you know physical turmoil, and then the storm would pass, and it's twenty one degrees, cool ocean breeze, uh, the you know gentle ripples on the water, you're jumping in the water and you're swimming around the boat there's little tiny fish that are coming up and they're you know exploring what you're doing you're exploring them and and everything's calm and beautiful and perfect and you like there's you know there's no worries because the weather is calm and it's you know it's really easy to take a dump yeah and, <laughs> and isn't
1: that just a, a beautiful metaphor for life yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, everything is, it's going to calm down again. Mm -hmm. That that storm will pass. You just got to wait it out.
3: Well, and I think it's in our modern world, we are so isolated from the weather and the natural cycles Mm -hmm. that sometimes we think that we are dealing with some depression or anxiety or inner turmoil. And we think that it's all us. But then you look out, oh it's a cloudy day or it's a stormy day or there's pressure systems coming through and recognizing that you know the earth and its state has an impact on your physical being relieves a lot of pressure to be in a perfect state all the time because you know, um, especially if we're an individual has high standards. And I know I'm an individual who has high personal standards. If I'm, I think back to these states where everything is, is flowing, everything is easy, everything is good. And I think, why can't I exist in that state? And I'm, now I'm in a state where it's, where i feel stuck where i you know i you know my insides are all knotted up and i'm and and for me to take a step forward feels like i'm i know i'm towing a thousand pounds behind me whereas you know two months ago it was it just felt like a speed walk uh you know over air and there are lots of there are lots of different factors that can impact uh the way that we feel, but the, you know, the state of the planet and just the general weather, uh, systems have, I think, an impact on our state of being. And
0: when the idea of resisting what is, Mm. is what causes this anxiety and causes this agitation and this, and it's crazy because you can't change it, right? Mm -hmm. Change the weather system. You couldn't change the situation on, you know, on the, on the ocean, the motion, all that stuff. So when you resisted it or tried to control it or got mad, it probably made it worse. Exactly. But I'm sure it was a, a journey of just like almost becoming one with it in a way and embracing, like you said in Andrew's book, may the obstacles always be there. Like just embracing yes. that idea of it's the rhythm of life. It's
3: part of our our it's, humanity. Well, and this, this is the responsibility ethic. Yeah. Like, to, to a T, right? We have we have the ability to choose our response. Right. And we can we can resist in the face of the storms of life or we can you know relax into the storms of life we can take a breath into Mm. the the storms of life and ride the storms and know the storms will pass and and it's it's the hardest thing to hear about when you're in the middle of a storm and that's i have these conversations with people all the time and go I, I know these concepts on failure. I know these concepts on overcoming obstacles, but I'm in the middle of and this fucking sucks right now. Yeah. And I don't want to be here yeah. and I want to be on the other side. And I don't, I don't want to feel like this. I want to feel and flow. I want, uh, everything to work out. And that's, that's not the process. You know, that, that is not the process at all. Uh, the process is learning how to relax into, um, in, into the storm.
1: Hmm. One thing that has been coming to mind for me is the idea of control and being training for the Olympics when every, there was so much regimented behavior and your every part of your life was under very tight control mm-hmm. and and you had to be to be performing at an Olympic level and then almost the exact opposite is being out in the middle of the ocean at the mercy of the planet and the seas and kind of just taking all the control out of your hands and all you can do is just slowly keep moving
3: well i think it's i think they're very opposite but also very similar because you're you know as an olympic athlete you're crossing an ocean of human design it's you to go to the Olympics is. Imaginary, what like what does it really mean to be the fastest runner in the world, or to be the fastest rower in the world? Well, okay, you make a boat go really fast. It's kind of an existential you know, mind bender. It's almost like what's it then, mean outside <clears throat>
0: that specific sphere of life? Exactly. Right. What's it mean in
3: everyday life? In everyday. Right. But then you, you know, it's just the same as like what does it mean to Take a boat across the ocean. Mm. And what does it mean to, you know, do the things that we do in life? And mm-hmm. uh, going to the Olympics, you, you definitely had to be regimented, and you were in a system that was very uh, dictated. You were you were a soldier, but at the same point in time, you had to deal with the storms that came into your life. For example, is when I was training for the Olympics, I had uh, back injuries that I had to deal with, and. Uh, you know going through the ups and downs and the despondency of thinking my body's not going to work for me um even when you're talking about this the you know the storms of dealing with commitment and uh, i talk about that in chapter 11 where after we'd won the world championships you know the world cup in lucerne and i was feeling um you know, overly restricted by the training regime, and so I, I, you know, I climb up this mountain. I bring a bottle of absinthe, and I just get three sheets, and uh, you know, fall down the mountain, you know, crawl into a cardboard box to uh, sleep off the sauce, <laughs> and and it's, try it's to re, re- yeah. wow, <laughs> you know, try to re reacquaint myself with uh, you know with who I am because I felt like I had fallen off, you know. Again, I you know, am, is this the path I'm supposed to be on? And uh, you know, I've you know, I've come to believe in this philosophy. You know, you've heard of like a stick in the stream. Mm-hmm. You know, we we're just we we're going down the stream. We yeah. should be a stick in the stream. Yeah. But I, you know, but I've grown up in this Western uh, philosophical uh, framework where it is all about volition. We have the, you know the achievement mindset. You know, if you. Know, if you believe you can achieve. And I, I do believe that there's an element of of that. You know if we have goals and we set ourselves on a certain path, then we're going to achieve more than if we just completely let go. So the, I like combining them into this this philosophy of say, saying that here we are, we're in a sphere. If you picture you're in a, this giant sphere floating down a river, and you can't quite control the flow of the river, but you can control where you are in your sphere you can go running in your sphere and you can run mm-hmm. out of the, uh, out of the fast water into the slower water, out of the slower water into the fast water, but still the stream of life is going to push you, um, push you along. Mm. And so it's, it's understanding that sometimes those waters that rush are, are rushing externally pushing you on, but sometimes those waters are, are, are rushing internally and you, you can't control the, you know, the emotional response that you have to a situation because, Something needs to be expressed, and uh, but you have the ability to to choose your response when you have that space
2: yeah
0: yeah and and i love I love the the ability to respond because yeah. you know in in seeing your book as I look down and hearing the title, um I think of responsibility in a different way, mm-hmm. right being a responsible father and responsible citizen and a responsible, but I've never really dug into like the whole idea of the ability to respond, and that is something we all have that's our humanity oh and it's it's empowering
3: responsibility can be uh, when you when you first think of it it can almost be an energy killer and think yeah uh, it is yeah, kind of dull uh, right but I've I have the ability to respond to my role as a father I have the ability to respond to my role as as a citizen I can I can do what I want to do I'm in a free country I, I don't have to vote I don't have to I don't have to do anything I don't particularly want to uh, within the realms of law.
0: Although you should vote, folks. Should. <laughs> this will have come out that's after is, the election. This so. is your ability to <laughs> respond. <laughs> 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 oh, I that's funny.
1: So mm. I wanted to ask about that story in Lucerne as well because yeah. it's a fun one, um, but I, I can only imagine the feeling of going from winning world championships to waking up in a cardboard box and yeah. and like talk about highs and lows and mm. questions of yourself so i'm wondering what teaching that you were probably unconsciously seeking out or or received from that low point from the
3: low point yeah because it was well that's because there you are, you're at the top of the world. We won the World Cup, uh, climbed a mountain. You climbed to the top of a mountain. Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, we um, Then we're drinking some absinthe. That's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, energy's up. And then uh, to a certain extent, training to be an Olympic athlete is very rigorous. You know, Monday through Saturday, you have a training schedule. You know exactly what you're going to be doing every single day, every single week. You're pushing yourself. But then you know, to achieve something great is really boring. I think that's, um, that's, that's a message that is often lost. You know, we talk about the glory at the end, the crossing of the finish line. That's exciting. And, you know, standing on the top of the mountain, that's great. But, you know, to climb a mountain, especially a big mountain, properly you have to you have to plan you have to have emergency plans you have to know when are you turning back what's the you know you have to make sure that you have all of your equipment in place and you have to have your checklists and you know the exciting part is actually climbing the mountain the boring part is actually preparing making sure you have the skills making sure you have the fitness and at the same way to you know to you know, to win a gold medal at the olympics even to boat across the ocean you know the exciting part is you know when you get smashed around by some waves or you have some cool stories to say but you know 95 of the time is just sitting on the oar making sure you're pointed in the direction that you say you want to be pointed in and going along and trying to find those little tiny snippets of of joy but here we were we had we had gotten to to the end point and all of a sudden i was having this feeling of you know goal completion and freedom you know here i was I'd, I'd broken out of this this boring rhythm of what it took to achieve olympic excellence and it felt good to be organic and dynamic and free and impulsive and just be an animal and instead like animal in a very uncontrolled way and that was it felt like I was getting back in touch with with my true self with who I was uh having fun and then recognizing that I also had you know I had a responsibility to my to my team and to my coach and uh even to my own athletic career afterwards uh when so we I climbed the mountain drank a bottle of absinthe I got lost on the mountain. Um we we stole a couple cowbells from some from some mountain unsuspecting cows. Mountain cows. <laughs> Poor innocent mountain cows. <laughs> mountain cows. And and then I uh got lost on this road and uh just three sheets. It was kind of, you know, blackout drunk type of thing where I'm kind of seeing things and, and not and snippets of memory and
1: well it's absinthe too it we're, is absinthe we're, we're not talking about like a corona here no
3: ta- yeah little green fairies yeah. buzzing around oh, wow. and uh, hmm. yeah a very strong anise taste and there's there's mild hallucinogenic properties to the absinthe so it it, it, it fucks you up mm-hmm. yeah um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah there I climbed into this box and It seemed it seemed kind of okay. Then I woke up in the morning and I was like, "This is what just happened." And uh, flew back. I I found my way back to town. I hitchhiked into town. Uh, This German guy picks me up, and I know a survivable amount of German. And then the guy was concerned that my other friend was lost on the mountains because I was I was ignorant. I didn't at that point in time. I didn't know how dangerous mountains were. I just thought, "Oh, they're there. You climb them. You come back down. It's just being you know when." (laughs) you're young and you don't know the uh, the consequences of, of the actions you take
0: what year was this just so I can follow the timeline yeah.
3: 2003 okay so I was 23 years old so this was a year before the first Olympics year before Athens yeah 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 2003 23 years old okay and so I, I find my way to the airport was managed to change my flights uh, get back get yeah I, I get back to Victoria a day late uh show up to practice and i have like i've just got scratches all over my arms and like big bumps on my head and um my coach he was like at first he's like i I didn't really care that you climbed a mountain and got lost in the mountain i actually thought that was kind of adventurous and fun but knowing that you did that and you like you drank a ball of absinthe and like that's why you got lost time out into the, Like you're an idiot like, <laughs> yeah basically like they say but he was british like hey but when you are on the drink it <laughs> do you want to win an olympic gold medal adam do you and so he we went out there that was good it was, yeah yeah kind of yeah. cute though yeah
1: it was, it was yeah, it was. yeah I, I feel like the tone yeah, it's probably not as uh, adorable. Do you as, want to try it again? Or?
3: Well, he it's... was kind of cute. Like, he, was really,
1: he was understated in the way that he that he coached
3: us, and he was, it was pretty much. Eh, do you want? Is this what you want? <laughs> like this? Like is this? Like essentially, that are you going to win an Olympic gold medal if you're, um, yeah. you know, messing with your body like this? Right. Well, Obviously not. Um, and so there is there's a lot of regret and shame of thinking well this is this is something that I felt like I needed to do and I wanted to do and I was very happy to do at the time uh but you know stepping up and facing the consequences was 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 not what I wanted to do and so then because the consequences were so hard and the act of of actually going on the mountain and having this adventurous time felt so natural uh the you know I felt like the you know um the system of training that kept me um you know kept me on the straight and narrow wasn't for me because there's a part of me that you know, that was dying that that wasn't being expressed to uh you know to make it uh, on the path and so i thought well there's yeah, like noticing parts of my my being dying, and I didn't like that. And so I said, maybe this Olympic thing isn't for me." And I went through this crisis of of, of meaning and crisis of of path, and thought, "I think I'm done." And normally, our coach would go and he'd he'd challenge us, and we'd be rowing and say, "Hey, do you, do would you like to win a gold medal, Jonathan? Jonathan, is is this truly what you would like to do?" You know, he challenges you, you, you challenge him back and, yeah. and you harden on, you go harder. But at that point we got, went out for the row and I was having trouble going, going along in the boat, obviously, cause I'd, um, I'd just gotten back, um, late that night before and we got halfway through the practice I was like, Hey, do you, do you want to win a gold medal, Adam? And I was like,
2: no, I
3: don't. <laughs> and I, I broke down, I was crying and, uh and we took the boat I was did like, like take me into the dock and I just uh what did I do I packed up my stuff and I just walked I walked all the way from the lake down to uh, the Galloping Goose in Victoria and I actually got the best therapy from this uh this, <laughs> this native dude from uh um you know somewhere up like in the Yukon or something he had he had come down from uh, from the Yukon was hanging out here, hmm. and he's like, "Oh, you don't like you don't look so good." And I'm like, "No, I yeah, I don't. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, you don't look so good either." And he's like, "No, I guess not." <laughs> and he's like, "Well, what's wrong?" And I said, "Well, I went and I you know I I drank too much and I let down some of my, some of my friends." And he's like, oh, "Ah, yeah, I've done that too." We just kind of sat there and we're like, okay, sometimes. The best healing is just commiseration. Like me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And so we had. So that was that was the low point. And I remember thinking, you know, like I said, is is this my path? Um, maybe I need to go do something that's more aligned with like who I who I am naturally. Uh, but I think, you know, at the. I had a, you know, we went back and we had a, I had a conversation with, um, with Mike and I said, Hey, that is, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I'm a robot. I don't feel like I'm expressing my whole self as, you know, as I go on this path, I feel like there's parts of me that are, that are dying. And, um, he seemed to say that that's natural. That's okay. Mm -hmm. And that was, and to a certain extent, that was part, I got I have this giant tattoo on my arm mm-hmm. and it's of the Arbutus tree. Mm-hmm. And what I liked about the Arbutus tree was that there's often um, branches that come off of the, Ar, uh, the Arbutus tree that um, aren't healthy, aren't contributing to its growth. And it will um, kill my branches of, of the tree so that the rest of the tree can grow and mm-hmm. live. And so I really like that metaphor because I think there's, you know, as we grow and as we mature, there's parts of us that have to die. And as parts of us die, it's very painful and it's very, um, uncomfortable. And so that process of, of getting lost on Mount Pilatus and coming out the other side, it was, it was painful, but there is, there's part of me that was slowly dying uh, in that process
0: and... well and i imagine like some of those parts weren't all just bad parts Mm-mm. it's like writing a book right you you wrote that book over 10 years and i'm sure you cut some stuff that was great mm-hmm. and we know this in the movie industry they cut some just gold i mean just it was hilarious or it was dramatic or it was just great but you just to get this synth, you know to get this like um fully realized work that's that's the work is knowing mm-hmm. like what to cut and so i'm just it's easy to think it's just all bad stuff but then there's some stuff that's getting in the way of the really good stuff i'm guessing mm-hmm. so what were some of those things maybe
3: well to a certain extent was that impulsive um, right behavior and i still have uh, an element of impulsivity in you know in my personality but it's uh, recognizing where it can be useful and helpful and other times when it can be destructive and so there's you know there's um when you're young you're just you have you have more (laughs) more
1: energy (laughs) and you just want to get out there and uh, in less ability to control those impulses oh very much so it's
3: it's fascinating i was even thinking about that earlier today how much more measured i am you know now that i'm you know i'm almost 40 john oh old man
0: come you know, come join us <laughs> on the other side of 40
3: but it's it, i think it, it is a challenge especially as a young man you have this you have this like strong you have a lot of energy a lot of of, like sexual energy a yeah. lot of physical energy a lot of emotional energy and um you know how do you how do you channel that in a way that can get you to the that's right. Yeah. Get you to middle age in one mm-hmm. piece.
1: So, in terms get, of in, controlling those impulses, or or just reframing them to to um, use their positive effect, or or whether it was letting part of you die, but also that that part of you was the sense of adventure and, and exploration.
3: Well, that's that that's what pushed me. Like that's what pushed me to become an Olympic gold medalist. That's what pushed me to get out into the ocean. Is the same thing that pushed me to. You know get drunk on a mountain so it's it's the same energy and it's coming from the same place you know going to the olympics i, was, I want to push my limits i want to see what's out there i want to see how, like what kind of transcendental extreme experience can i have here i am in competition with the world watching and that's all that attention is just uh, causing me to have a a, a more visceral human uh, experience mm-hmm. uh, you know same with you know the ocean to get out there into the extremes to to see what's what will your response be to the you know to the beautiful things to the disastrous things to the benign things is the same thing that says hey what what would it be like to climb a mountain in switzerland steal some cowbells and get drunk on <laughs> <onto them?" Yeah. laughs> and you know, the you know, there's healthy ways to express it, and there's less healthy. And mm-hmm. again, it's I keep coming back. We have the ability to choose our response, right? And we all have energy inside of us that's that's being created, and often we can't control that. You can't control uh, the, the the emotional energy you know, if if it's um, you know if it's it's one of you know impulsive drive, or if it's one of uh, Depressive despondency or of anxious doubt; uh, th- these energies are created, but we have the ability to respond to that in a way that is measured when we find the space to do so.
0: Mm. What I'm curious about is y- you—you push through that t- difficult time. You did mm. compete in the Olympics in 2004, and I yeah. know just reading back on the history of, of, of the race. Um, you guys kind of came in as perhaps metal favorites mm-hmm. and I believe it was you finished was it fifth yeah we finished fifth so I'm sure that was difficult in itself and, and I'm thinking you were, you already had these feelings of maybe not wanting to do it and then you did do it and, and experienced perhaps a disappointing um, crushing defeat mm-hmm. um, but four years later you, you still came back and did it like I would have thought that after that defeat, that would have been almost confirmation to you that see, see, I I knew I shouldn't have you know I knew I shouldn't have done this you know blah blah blah. But somehow there was a there was a mindset that you went through where you agreed to come back and then yeah, perhaps, well it was
3: yeah. well, one of the biggest uh, lessons I got was this idea of um, of cluster benefits. Uh, that was that's mm-hmm. and I talk about cluster benefits in. I think chapter one where we haven't even talked about the capsize yet. I know. But buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? We know where we're going on this journey and we will get back to it.
0: It's the biggest lie you've ever told. (laughs) (laughs) This is such an organic conversation.
3: Oh, I love it. So you have a big goal. And you have a lot of other benefits that are, um, obtained in the pursuit of the big goal. Mm. And for me going towards the Athens Olympics, it, it was pretty crushing afterwards because we had thought that we were going to, to win, right. uh, the, the media had set us up as we we're going to win. We were young. So, and we hadn't had a lot of, um, exposure to, um, like large social pressure. It's uh, Athens
1: too. It's the birthplace the birth, of the Olympics. Yeah. yeah.
3: There was a whole lot. Yeah. There was a whole lot going on. Mm-hmm. And so that happened. Afterwards, I went down to Stanford University, and uh, I was I was finishing up my my schooling. And I was just trying to think, what was the point of this? You know, again, all that being a fast rower shows is that you're good at sitting in your ass, going backwards, doing something absolutely useless. <laughs> and you're the best. And you're the best in the world at doing it. And pushing <laughs> yeah. pushing water, slightly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pushing water. <laughs> so satisfying yeah. viscerally satisfying but right. uh maybe that's why you do it but there were other things that in the pursuit of this olympic gold medal i had you know there were other things that i achieved i'd i'd gotten in you know and into stanford university wow i would have never gotten that had i um uh, not pursued the olympic right. medal i right. learned a lot about uh, perseverance i learned a lot about what motivated me you know even having gone through the experience of uh, you know, going up pilates and back down i learned uh, a lot about my limits and what mm-hmm. uh, what i needed to do to make sure i didn't you know fall off the deep end when i was pushing myself to um, you know to those limits and and so there was, you know, when I think of, when you think of goals that you're, you're pursuing in your life, uh, understanding the benefits that you're gaining from them, you know, the, the deeper benefits of, of building teamwork, of building uh, skills that will set you up for the future of, of, um, you know, feeding deeper needs that you have in, in your life. Uh, these sorts of things push you forward. And so after going to, you um, to Athens and the failure of Athens and the, the despondency uh, and, the, and the meaningless and finding meaning and and understanding that that there are these cluster of benefits that occur even in the greatest failure. You can look back at, at something that would externally be seen as a failure and see the benefits that you've gleaned from you know from your pursuit of this goal. And so I was I thought I was done, to be honest with you, after Athens, and I thought I was, I was going to be um, you know, in the world of, of, of engineering or sciences, that sort of thing, and uh, after I was a player coach down at Stanford, it was the power of, of mentoring, the power of, of helping uh, people who were a bit younger than me. I was, I was 24, 25. So people called me Old Man Creek, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is funny to think yeah, about awesome. at that yeah. time. But they were you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty, yeah, and um, uh, the and teaching some of these guys how to row a boat and seeing their energy and their drive and their excitement just it stimulated me and said you know what there I I'm, I'm reconnected to some of the simpler. Uh, pieces of this practice that um, helped me you know reconnect with with the love of it and and why why I enjoy it Hmm. and then I got a you know what what actually got me back on board I got a call from Mike Spracklin and it was in the middle of it was January and they were going to have a, a training camp in Seville Spain in February so it was that rainy you know rainy rainy northern california winter and we're going to have a training camp in <laughs> seville spain would you like to come adam can't phone? say no
1: to that no. No. Like, oh
3: no. yeah well yeah. and i thought and to be honest when i went to that training camp i thought this is my like go to seville i'll have a good time i'll enjoy it i'll reconnect because i had still had some old friends who i um, i had deep lasting friendships with uh, and so I thought I have this experience and then we'll be done but during that training camp I saw the radio on the wall and I thought I think we could put together a really good boat that could uh, that could win and there were some really good athletes um, in line there and we had we still had our great coach and that's what I remember it was a really big decision and actually, the decision was, do I stay at Stanford University? I had a fully funded, uh, you, know, you know, graduate program at Stanford University. Set me up in the petroleum sciences. I was going to, you know, move off into resource, resource extraction world. You know, make, uh, make some money. Um, I was, made a biodiesel reactor. They were gonna, I was going to study um, biodiesel, uh, you know, making natural biofuels or i could go to the olympics and wow. make another go and there's nothing certain about the olympics and there's no financial certainty with that well especially as, as a rower and i actually put the what making the decision i actually went through this decision making uh process action action uh, action ethic two. that's mm-hmm. what i incorporate here it it uh, it's based on aristotle's um <laughs> Aristotle's method of pros and cons: hmm. you know, make a pro, make a con. Right. Yeah. But this is slightly different. Is that you have you have the two options? So, you know, fully funded graduate degree or Olympic pursuit. You know, the two options, and then you list the pros and cons for each options. You know, it's well, the, you know, I have a potential to make a lot of money. Um, I'll be studying, you know, the Earth, and I'm interested in that. Cons, I'm In the academic world, and I don't like the academic world that much. (laughs) Like it's it's a struggle, and uh, there's uh, you know know, pros of Olympics. I'm there with my friends. I really enjoyed them. Got the chance of winning Olympic gold medal. The cons: nothing's certain. Uh, My body, uh, you know, could fail me, and um, there's you know it'll be a lot of hard physical labor. And so then you know, after writing the pros and cons of each options, you switch all the cons into pros. So the con of um, you know, Olympic gold medal not being certain turns into uh, a pro as in this path of you know, studying uh, biofuels and earth sciences is, is a certain path. Right. And the the con of you know, I'm doing something that's academic, and I am um, not enjoying that becomes a pro. Uh, I'm I'm doing something very physical, which which I I enjoy. And then once you have pro statements supporting each choice, you rank each one intuitively from one to ten.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
3: And so you say, well, the you know doing something physical is important. Uh, maybe it's a seven out of ten that's what matters um you know the chance to spend you know an extended time with really good friends like an extra year and a half that's not a lot of time and these are some guys that really value Um, put that up at a a nine maybe nine and a half and so rate ranking everything from one to ten and then at the end of the process you total up what uh what each side is and then each side has a score and then the score that's the highest is the most likely choice and the best choice you should make and after going through this process it was pretty obvious that going for a second olympic uh, pursuit was what i truly wanted to do and it's uh, i found it's a really useful useful
2: tool yeah
1: that's, it's awesome and I, I love like the application of science and and reason to it and at the same time i wonder if you had have just gone into your gut and intuition do you think you would have gotten the same result
3: i would have been confused that's why i had to go through that because it was such a big decision mm-hmm. and it was a difficult decision and i needed more clarity and that you know the by going through the process, I was able to confirm feelings I had had before, but they were too cloudy for me um, uh, to to be able to have that confidence. And the beauty of this too is that it turns all negative statements into positive statements. So you're 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 battling the positives of one choice versus the positives of another choice because fear accesses one part of your brain. Uh, that shuts down a lot of your higher functioning and so by making sure that you're you're um, you have an optimistic mindset a positive mindset for you're you're more bound to make the better decision versus exploring and and thinking and feeling too often I find I'll I'll move towards the the negative and the negative just stops us from taking the risks we should take in our life and stops us from from moving forward and uh, you know, the, the world belongs to the optimists and, you, mm-hmm. and being an optimist isn't something that, um, comes necessarily easily. You, you have to work on it and you got to train it and mm-hmm. this is a little tool to do it. Awesome.
0: So do you feel like you went through a process in your training of seeing what went wrong in 2004 and mm-hmm. sort of writing that wrong and then using that to help you, you know, win gold in 2008, spoiler mm-hmm. alert. Um yeah. it's <laughs> not really alert. a spoiler, thing, spoiler for, alert. For, for the sake of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I say that all the time. Yeah, so. yeah. That's why Angie's laughing. But uh like did you feel like that was the process is Okay guys, this is why we got 5th. So we got don't do this or was it like here's all the things we did right, let's do those things even better. Um or was I it a
3: combination? it wasn't about redemption. Okay. In 2008 was not about redemption. Uh, I think I personally felt like I had redeemed myself after Athens and I had Beijing been about redemption. I don't think it would have been the right motivating force. Right. Yeah. It definitely it definitely felt good in contrast, I would say. Uh the you know the contrasting the the disappointment to the victory. That was that was a really neat experience. But for us to gel we had five people returned from athens to beijing and there were four new people so we were a new crew and we said you know this is this is about an opportunity that was that was the conversation this is the opportunity we have you know we're and i remember even as the races would come uh, forward we, we'd sit we'd have this conversation we're building a bridge we're building a bridge to Beijing brick by brick you know body by body boat by boat stroke by stroke we're building a bridge we're going to Beijing and we're going to we're going to get there we're going to you know we're going to win this race and uh, this is just a stepping stone and it was all forward looking there is nothing about Athens There there um, and that was a that was a conversation that was had in the media. And that's a great story. I mean, you know, if you look at archetypal stories, the mm-hmm. redemption story is, yeah, is a very powerful story. Uh, but for us, the, it didn't resonate. And I remember afterwards, the, uh, um, <laughs> some, maybe it was Scott Russell. I was talking to CBC. But yeah. Someone put their microphone in my face and was like, how does it feel to be redeemed? And I looked at him and was like, it's not about redemption. It's about seizing the moment. And that's, uh, what I think w- was about for us. And I, I think that was, you know, our ability to choose our response. You know, we didn't have to follow the narrative of, uh, of what other people were saying. We, we knew what motiv- motivated us and it was about being hyper present and making sure that we didn't, uh, we didn't let anything go to waste because these, these chances will come once, once in a lifetime.
0: And what a beautiful metaphor of not being at the whim of the narrative of what others are saying, mm. you know, in, a, in our own lives as well. Where, mm. It's so easy for us to just live according to the expectations of others or social media or whatever, but to know yourself and know why, what intri- intrinsically motivates you.
3: Well, true. When you talk yeah. about that, you know, the, you know, the narratives, even of our spouses oh, and of, of our parents yeah. and of, uh, you know, our, you know, our social networks, we can, we can define our narrative. We we know what feels right, but it takes it takes some time to actually mm-hmm. to tease that out. I've always found that I've I've you know if I have a feeling of being unsettled, that that means that there is some disalignment between the narratives that is being told and what I'm um, or the narrative that I should be that I should be living. I love it.
1: What, what comes to mind for me now is, um, going back to, uh, some, some things you've written about in the book and, uh, and that maybe the early childhood narrative and the relationship with early childhood trauma or repressed emotions and addiction, mm-hmm. which is, um, maybe not what one would expect in, in encountering your book. And you talk a lot about the uh, work of Gabor Mate, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to kind of inquire a little bit more about why that, like how that found its place in the book, and how that relates to your own upbringing. And if you could just take us through that.
3: Yeah, I have a I have a chapter in here where I do talk about um, is it in stress recovery? I talk about recovery and recovering effectively. What I found interesting was that um, I'm trying to figure out where we're going to go. Cause you talked about childhood. We talked about addictions, the, how would I start with this? You, you're training for the Olympics. You're, uh, you're, you're pushing your body to the maximum for four to seven hours every single day. Every time you go out for a two hour row, that's like a, a hit of dopamine serotonin epinephrine i remember looking at a friend uh who ended up becoming a doctor he says it's we're like heroin addicts do you realize this we are feeding a deep underlying addiction we kind of laughed about it but afterwards it was so true i, I felt like i was going through a withdrawal process because i wasn't getting the same amount of you know and Exercise. Don't get me wrong. Exercise gives you positive endorphins, and I will exercise for the rest of my life. That's I think how I'm how I'm wired, and I know I'm happiest, I'm my best when I exercise. But I don't think I'll be exercising. You know, I can't yeah, physically for like for eight hours at that level, and so uh, there was a there was a withdrawal period afterwards, and I found myself uh, afterwards looking for ways to. Keep that in the the endorphins high, because I was I was so used to having so like my body soaked with with all these feel good chemicals, mm-hmm. and I'd you know at first afterwards it was great. to say, like, hey I can, I don't have to like, drink three times a year. I can have a beer every single night. This is awesome. <laughs> you know I can brew my own beer and I can drink two liters, three liters, and all, it was great. And <laughs> I can. And so there was this element of just freedom of, oh, this is great. Or it was uh, smoking pot. I love smoking pot. So I was like, oh, I, I remember fantasizing when I was training for the row. I was like, I just want to smoke a big joint and go fish for crabs. Right? That's like, like I put my crab trap down and then relax and then pull up the crabs. That's a like, West Coast uh, dream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so, like these things, and so then I had the freedom to do that, and I didn't. There wasn't a whole lot going on, especially after the Olympics. So I had this time of, of just being able to explore, you know, these substances and have the freedom to to use them, and they they have all their their benefits to them. But again, when we moved back to childhood, I was raised in a pretty conservative household. I was raised in a um, my in a Baptist church, uh, very Christian. I went to a Christian school, so I had uh, very uh, conservative values growing up. But it was also my parents didn't have um, the really like the ability or the education, and I know they did the best they could, um, and I, I truly believe that. And thought at the same point in time, we we never had the conversations about sex. We never had the conversations about well drugs or alcohol other than you, know, you should just never do that it's and the devil it's the devil well <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't quite like that but it was more it was more like suppressed everything it's just yeah. like, you know sex you should only have sex when you're married and drugs alcohol you know any you know gambling just never don't do any of that ever and it was just expected that you just would avoid it and I remember the first time getting drunk and thinking, "I've been told that this is awful," yet I am really enjoying myself right now. Mm-hmm. I remember I was singing at the karaoke bar or something, singing Tom Jones. Said, <laughs> it's not unusual <laughs> to be mad with anyone. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and, and again, so there. And again, it wasn't black and white. I was, I was. So I think this is. Um, this is the most salient point from my childhood. I was raised in a black and white household when we live in a grayscale world, and so uh, trying to figure out what that grayscale was for um, for a lot of things was was difficult. And I found um, afterwards uh, trying to adapt to you know society um, post sport and. Uh, you know and lean into my professionalism i had to be able to manage uh the substances and the activities i had in my life and so instead of saying that you know you know I, the example i use in here is donuts because it's a i'm i love donuts right <laughs> donuts are amazing yeah. and they're god's gift to humanity yeah, on the I eighth so. day god <laughs> created donuts <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 after the, the day of rest, I just after uh, he napped, he got <laughs> up and made donuts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. and and I have this. Um, I found this model actually quite quite useful. It helped me deal with um, all sorts of substances and activities uh, in my life. And let, let me let me read through them. So, substances: drug, alcohol, food, anything you ingest that gives you sensory pleasure. Sexual habits like masturbation, prostitution, sex. Uh, pornography, anything that gives you erotic pleasure, social habits like social media, texting, excessive socialization, television, games and gambling, online, mobile sports games, games of skill and chance, um, shopping and debt, comfort shopping, running up debts, shoplifting, fear of, uh, of debt, violence, violent games, moving, fighting, road rage, hitting people, destruction of, of our, our objects, exercise, so. Uh, cardio strength mobility balance any physical movements or spirit focus thought non-thought prayer song instrumentation breath meditation so i found that all of these activities they're neither good nor bad it's thinking that makes them so Hmm. and they can all be taken to the excess and obviously cocaine is more dangerous than prayer I think that's
2: it's that's <laughs> gotta, universally accepted. Yeah, I, I would think, say, yeah. I think we got a and yeah, more, expensive. Yeah, <laughs> <far> <laughs> more expensive, yeah, more, expensive.
3: But it, each of those, each of them, can be taken to the extreme, right? And we all, uh, I don't know, being in a religious uh, upbringing, I saw people who are just—they seem to be like addicted to, uh, you know, you know, prayer, and they'd escape life, and you're, you're, you're a recluse, and. Um, simply pursuing uh, you know the religious path just you're, you're not partaking in real life and uh, so I found that that just looked and you'd, you'd be escaping from your re- responsibilities and other things you should be doing in your life in the same way that people would fall off the wagon with you know excessive you know cocaine or pornography or whatever but let's talk about donuts because that's so much
2: yeah
1: more, more wh- wholesome. <laughs> oh andrew
0: i can't believe he did that yeah oh mm, he doesn't let me get away with any can, of that kind of humor but you can use that um, one in your next mm, book if you want it was good though but yeah. I, I was thinking of a boston
3: cream which i
0: do love boston cream
3: yeah which yeah. is wholess whole
2: mm.
1: it's uh whole whole full, whole full. yeah
3: whole full. <laughs> but but uh, <clears throat> there's i uh, you know in the shades of gray we talk about uh you can have something that's pleasurable. So you, you can go through, there's four stages here, pleasure, coping, addiction, abuse. Mm-hmm. And in the middle between coping addiction is, is a harm line, but we start by something that's, that's just pleasurable. And you think, you know what, I eat a donut and wow, this is really good. It's you know, sweet and melts in my mouth. It's kind of crispy, but Soft and oh, my mouth is watering right now. I'm just <laughs> yeah, thinking about it. Mm. We've got
1: peanut butter cookies nearby yeah. for like, for after. Yeah, <laughs>
3: and so you can just have something because it's pleasurable. And man, that's so good. I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy mm-hmm. having a good donut because life is about simple, small, sweet things. And then the next step is is coping, and uh, this was the big breakthrough for me that it's it's okay to cope. It's okay to use donuts to cope. Guess what? Life is stressful. Sometimes you get into the pit and you're, there is some dissonance and you don't have the time to choose your response, right? You don't have the time to step back and choose your response. So you, you need to create that space and you can create that space with donuts you can say, you know what? I'm really stressed right now. So I'm going to eat some donuts or I'm, um, you know, I'm, and I'm depressed. So I'm going to eat some donuts and it's going to get me through this but really what it should be doing is to give you space to address the underlying issue it's you know to get you through a tough point and where you need to really start uh, paying attention is that every time you get stressed every time you get depressed every time even you have an emotion you need to have a donut like oh that's i'm you know, I'm, every emotion I'm feeling, I have to I have a donut and that just needs to be marked with my donut
2: hmm.
3: and you, you're having donuts when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're stressed, when you're depressed, when you're, and it's just, it just becomes a constant and, and you're addicted, but you can be highly functional. You know, there's people who are addicted to coffee and they're really functional and there's people I've known who've been addicted to alcohol, and they've been highly functional, and been able to have you know great careers, and that's okay. Uh, you just have to recognize that there's a price that you pay when you're um, w- when you're addicted to a given substance or behavior, and in you know, understanding the effects that it can have. And then <laughs> abuse is where you get to the other side, where all of a sudden people come in and have intervention and instead of just harming yourself you're actually harming other people and that's when people s- kind of step in and say hey look your your donut eating habit Andrew yeah although you think it's wholesome <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hurting me and It's hurting other people mm. and it's getting in the way of, uh, of what I, I'd like to see out of our relationship together and mm. that's where they intervene mm. I had no idea well, this is why we're having the conversation. And uh, and usually the idea is to, to be aware. One is to give yourself uh, forgiveness, have self-compassion right. when you're coping. When you're coping and using different substances and behaviors to get through a stressful time, that's okay. You're human. We're all human. We have difficult times. When you're on the other side of the harm line and you're going through some addiction issues you should start to really think to yourself and say i need to get some help here uh, i'm eating you know too many donuts maybe i need to reach out to uh, you know uh, a close friend or uh, go to go see a mental health pro- professional like a nutritionist or a nutritionist, or <laughs> a nutritionist. <laughs> you know maybe you could be eating uh, peanut butter and jam sandwiches
1: instead mm. of donuts yeah. so, so how do you know where that abuse line is if you're in that area the harm line that i talk about is between the harm line is between
3: coping and abuse it's it's self-reflective and i think the best part of this model is that it just allows you one to give yourself some self-compassion i think taboo is the the greatest driver of addiction you know the 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 feeling like you shouldn't be talking about something or you shouldn't be doing it like it's you know and this is i don't know if you want to go here maybe we could have ended it up but you ever notice like when you go on like if you look at porn do you guys ever look at porn sometimes i have i don't know
0: i mean honestly we wouldn't be vulnerable or truthful if there's <laughs> <Yeah.
3: some laughs> no,
1: but, but there's
3: like there's this there i don't know, I, I don't know if this is the, po- the podcast i talk
1: about but, but uh, it, if any it's probably this one okay
2: <laughs> it might not be in the show
0: notes
1: later okay but. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, you know how there's like there's like
3: incest porn out there and you're mm-hmm. like, like there's like brothers and sisters and like br- isn't I'm, that just
0: game of thrones
3: yeah, maybe it's game of thrones but i <laughs> yeah. i remember looking at be, and it, it mm-hmm. like showed up like five years ago or something and it's like why is there all this incest porn yeah. everywhere and i was talking to friends and they're like "Ah, oh, there's incest porn why is it there mm-hmm. and you're part of it even like I, my face went red your face went red when we started talking about porn because this is like a taboo so yeah. yeah. this is why we were talking about donuts not talking about <laughs> like, like <laughs> yeah porn. totally but the uh <clears throat> but when you when something's taboo it it creates a shame spiral And so if you're looking at some like brother-sister porn and you're, you're, you know, you're experiencing erotic pleasure, which that's totally okay, you know, to experience erotic pleasure. But if you're doing it under the the context of shame, you're like, oh, I, I shouldn't be doing this. And it it creates an addictive tendency that keeps you going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and that's what the purveyors of free porn are looking to do they have a very smart and i i haven't seen any research on this but uh this is what 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 i think is But i'm happening.
0: looking into the research <laughs> yeah <laughs> well this is and i i'd be curious i don't know if yeah. if
3: anyone i i <laughs> these people are very smart at making money and yeah. that's what that's oh, why sure. th- they're yeah. not putting all this stuff up there for free they and where they make their money from are people that are are porn abusers you know people like uh remember being with terry cruz this guy who's like yeah. he would just like he's like i would the sun would go up and i'd be watching porn yeah. and the sun would go down and i'd still be watching porn and to go you know honestly i've never been into in that state but like i'd i feel like that's you know when 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 you're driven by shame and his main thing was that i had to speak about it and say i'm addicted to porn and by him saying that he said it all of a sudden it released this Mm. idea of oh i should be ashamed about doing this because guess what you know it's you know it's out there everybody does it and that's
0: um as long as you don't eat donuts while watching (laughs) because then that's just doubly shamey so um before we totally go off the rails um i have a you know, something, some, something has been, I've been connecting something in my mind with, with something you started mm-hmm. with, with growing up in a religious household. Mm-hmm. I did too. Mm-hmm. Okay. My name is John Close. I grew up in a religious household, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh yeah. And same thing. Um, also my parents taught at Christian school mm-hmm. and I grew up in an environment of, there's no way when, you know, you talk about the black and white in, in a gray world. Um, and you talk about the approach of it's it's very guilt focused, mm-hmm. right? Because because the, the 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 most elementary truth about Christianity is you're worthless, and the only reason you have any meaning is because God tortured His Son, right, on a cross. Yeah, and and now you have meaning if you believe and subscribe to that. So mm-hmm. I mean, that that mindset that it gives somebody um, shame is bound to be there right and and not only that but um those donuts that you've talked about are very very appealing i mean how does the bible begin with adam and eve and god's like hey just don't eat that fruit there just don't eat the donut and and, yeah don't eat the donut dangling from the tree and you know by the time he's turned around walking away there's a donut all over adam's face you know what i mean yeah but i mean this goes at the i think this just goes to like a part of our our humanity that's always been there Mm-hmm. Right, and when you insert like guilt and these these religious black and white structures, it really, I mean, to me, it's it's. I, I wondered if some of this just came from your background, well, it did, some well, of this learning.
3: I think it did. Yeah, and then it's it's freeing myself from from the black and white structures, A- absolutely. And yeah. you know, the the track we're on is to figure is to figure out how do you know when you've crossed the line from um, from coping to addiction, right? And but before, and I we were st- I started talking about shame and guilt. And the difference between guilt and shame, I think it's important to to define it on this podcast is that shame is the deep belief that I am wrong, that there is something deeply wrong about me and guilt is I am a good person, but I've done something behavior. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my behavior is wrong. And so I think guilt, you know, if you're trying to rate them against, you know, shame is, is, is a far greater driver of, of addiction and abuse uh, guilt will also drive it, but it, w- it would have less power because you have one level of removal from from the behavior from actually identifying if you actually if you fully identify with the behavior. You know, I think one of the one of the best um, um, pieces of advice I ever got for for dealing with with an addiction, it was simply like, can you step back and just watch yourself while you're you're taking part in an addictive uh behavior so oh it's it's donut time and so instead of just being like oh it's donut i shouldn't have a donut oh but i'm gonna have a donut oh i shouldn't have a donut oh i had the donut so good oh i feel so guilty about the donut but the donut was so good i want to have another donut and and just instead of just being in that like animal shame mind of thinking, I. I know that I shouldn't have the donut, but I ate the donut, and it felt so good to have the donut, and it was felt so right to have the donut, but it felt bad to have the donut, and I'm so horrible for having the donut because I feel so horrible for having the donut, I'm gonna have another donut, and it's, it, and then you say I'm never gonna have a donut again, and then the next day you're like oh I'm just gonna have another donut, and it just it happens over and over again, and that's that's where it becomes more of an addiction that's starting to move towards abuse. But to, to step back and watch yourself and say, you know what? I'm just gonna watch myself go through this process and I'm not gonna judge myself. I'm, I'm gonna have zero judgment when I pick up the donut. I'm just gonna say, hmm, you're eating a donut. Interesting. You know, what's, what's causing your, uh, your, your donut eating um, inclination? And you start to observe, you know, the emotions, you start to observe the, um, you know, the situation, you know, like Charles Duhigg wrote in his book, the power of habit, you have have cue, uh, cue activating event and response. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, understanding what the cue is and, uh, activating a, you know, event and so, but understanding what the, the cue is uh, to, to have you start uh, eating the donut is, an important thing and just observing it, then you can replace that with something else. Well, and
0: I often think the donut in our culture is social media. I'll I'll tell you for me, Mm -hmm. not how many times I've been sitting down to do some great, you know, some great, some good thinking or writing or reflection. And and it starts to get to a point where it's like, you know, you're getting to the crest of the hill, so to speak, in your thought or your writing. And it's like, you know, when you, when you, when you come up over the hill, then you're going to be coasting, you know, you're going to get, get to an easier place. But, but because you're on the crest, you don't want to stay in that moment. And so you just quickly go on social media, check your Facebook or yeah. go on ESPN or, or do whatever, just to kind of give yourself that relief. And it's that addictive behavior. Well, it's like that, you reach for that donut mm-hmm. to, to stop the painful process. Yeah. Dopamine, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like,
1: it is dope. dope. I <laughs> yeah, do- <laughs> donut pudding <laughs> yeah. dough, because dough, but like just do- each of those things <laughs> that you're is. mentioning are dopamine triggers. It is. Yeah. So Absolutely. And, and that's what's the addictive part. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, understanding the, you know, the gift of, of this, uh, you know, of this grayscale process of, of pleasure, uh, coping, addiction, abuse is, is just, observation and one giving yourself permission to right. you know to partake in a given behavior and understanding that that that's okay and that's healthy and that's part of being a human and then observing yourself to say hmm am, am i using this to cope and to um to get through a stressful time because you know life is stressful and sometimes it's okay to turn to espn to get through a stressful time and but if i'm always going to espn um, then mm-hmm. sometimes that can be a very negative thing yeah. and it's it's interesting I was um, in some of the pre-readers I was talking to a guy who was going through uh, some opiate addiction withdrawal and he said after I, I uh, was off my opiates I was on social media all the time and I couldn't stop and that's a uh, you know it's just fascinating uh, it's fascinating to see how you have these you know, we've got social media, we've got pornography, we've got, you know, online news media, we have all these things that wanna just like draw us in mm-hmm. and that's what our attention is constantly what we're
0: yeah, yeah absolutely you know,
1: we're bombarded with. And, yeah. yeah. And none of them create connection, right? No. Like none of them are are actually making us whole. So it's not that they're all terrible and we can't go near any of them, but it's finding that balance between, okay, I can check my Facebook, I can post something, and then I can walk away and do something that actually connects me with a deeper purpose or or allows me to better understand myself or, or get some... some healthy benefit
0: i'm trying to find those bits of wholeness those tim bits of wholeness yeah the tim bits of wholeness.
2: <laughs> i had to do it man <laughs> yeah i appreciate it
1: mm. <laughs> cool well as i think we're beginning to wrap up and running out of donut metaphors mm. um, oh, never <laughs> it's been a pretty spectacular conversation i wonder if uh for the listeners out there if there was anything else, uh, that you wanted to offer as, as a parting gift to, to people who have, um, undoubtedly been drawn in by this conversation. Yeah.
3: The parting gift. I'd say the parting gift would be to explore this book. There is so much more than we talked about today in, in the book. Uh, there's great stories. You can uh, read the story of, of the capsize and the stories will draw you in and, and keep you going. And, uh, you know, when we talk about the responsibility et- ethic, which is the book, let's just re- restate we have the ability to choose our response, and, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the inner turmoil. And I'd say we have the ability to choose a response to, to the inner turmoil that we experience on a regular basis. And the inner turmoil is affected by external um, events and external even weather patterns as we were talking about Uh, but it is an an internal it it is an internal battle constantly and so when we talk about responsibility i have the i have the ability to choose my response and make a decision uh, that will make my life better more fulfilling more aligned with my values um, more uh, i'll get more of what i want and less of what i don't want if i'm able to use that space right between every action and reaction there is a space and in that space lies our power to choose and when we take the time to observe that space look at that space we can choose a response that will make us you know happier healthier be able to enjoy donuts more, <laughs> more, more, more whole, more whole. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Adam,
0: um, in many ways, um, the, the things we've been talking about today are really matters of life and death. And I thought the final question I have is um, I know before you went on this um boat journey, which um, which you detail in the book mm-hmm. and you talk about how you capsized in the Bermuda Triangle, which mm-hmm. is weird because nothing weird ever happens there, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I know before you left you wrote a letter to your son yeah and why don't we perhaps that could be a cool place to end off on um what was what did that letter entail
3: well i had a conversation it was the hardest letter i've ever written in my life i had a conversation with jordan his dad had died when he was around two and a half or three so uh, he would have been around the same age where he had s- memories and feelings of his father but nothing concrete and i said what jordan if you're dad was alive today or you had even had a letter from your dad what would you want it to say and he said that I wasn't really interested in my dad's achievements or I wasn't really interested in my dad's story because I got that you know you get the story of this is your dad this is what he did and blah 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 but I wanted to know at a deeper level um what did he think about God And what did he think about politics and how, how would he navigate the difficult parts of life? And so that's the direction that I went in the letter that I wrote to Jefferson. And I actually haven't, I'm I'm actually kind of scared of it. I haven't read that letter (laughs) in in a number of years. I'd be curious to see what, um, what I wrote, what I do remember writing in, in that letter was, um, was exploring the seven deadly sins and saying, you know, these, this is the, the interesting parts. These are the interesting parts of life. And this is where you will learn more about yourself, uh, than, um, than anything else, because this is the time, those are the times of challenge and the times of challenge come. And that, that's why, um, you know, the deadly sins were, uh, were defined and, uh, I'm trying to think. Was it? uh, Was was an old Catholic philosopher from the Mm -hmm. 15th or 16th century who defined them. Yeah. But going, uh, you know, I think it ties back into the subject of this of this podcast. You know, it's you know the obstacles are what show us what's truly meaningful in life. And so, in that letter to my son, I said, you know, I. I think I went through each of the deadly sins and said, you know, this is how I've experienced them in my life. And this is how they've taught me to live a balanced and whole life. And hopefully my experience with these can help you be more uh, balanced and whole. So seven deadly sins. I'm not sure if I even know them off the top of my head, but we've got Sloth, Murth, envy, sloth pride, envy, pride, pride murder, murder um, lust. Yeah. Um, I
0: just don't partake in any of them, so I yeah, don't <laughs> It's, it's probably good we it. don't know that. Yeah, I know.
3: <laughs> but it was, I, th- I thought that was the good, that was uh, the structure I used. And
0: uh, And this was a letter in case you didn't make it back. If, in case right? I didn't
3: make it back. Yeah. In case I didn't make it back, and it would be delivered to him when he was 18 years old. Hmm. Will it still be? I don't know. Maybe
1: I should.
2: Yeah.
3: It, it terrifies me. I should re- read it again. <laughs>
1: but, what, what part of it terrifies you?
3: It's, uh, well, it, again, it's the. Um, well, even even when I was talking about these these addictions, and it's that, that same thing when we're, we're talking about porn and our faces turn all red. It's, it's going to that vulnerable part of your, your being where it's, it doesn't feel comfortable to be imperfect because we're, we fear being judged. And uh, we're, especially in you know, the social media age, it's always thumbs up or thumbs down immediately. Right. on on the face of a meme and it, you know one thing said in the wrong way can you know drastically impact you know, your your path so there's you know there's that fear of making a mistake out of fear that it will you know derail you and right. uh you know reduce opportunity and reduce your ability to live a good life and even as i talk through it i think that well it's I'll just come back. It's better to be. I'm, I here on the side of being more honest and open and sharing,
2: oversharing, vulnerability. Yeah, it's what makes
1: us all <clears throat> human. That's the mm-hmm. human experience, and that's the the part of it that uh, we like to reflect on mm-hmm. when we have these conversations. Is it's more people can connect to it more when it's real mm-hmm. and. I can only imagine that that your son would have that same experience.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, that's the <clears throat> that would be the hope, and
0: uh, it could yeah. even be a useful exercise for people to to write a letter to it to their child
3: as, as if, if you know. Well, it was, and the, it is an exercise of, of taking it as a even just as a leadership exercise for, um, from a safety perspective. Yeah. If you were to go into work today. You know, yeah. And you know, you're about to you know, go to your bartending job and not come home, or you're to go to your landscaping job and not come home. Write a letter to you know, your child or your loved ones mm-hmm. and say, "This is why my work was worth it. Right. This is why it was worth me to doing my job uh, that I that I died on it, mm-hmm. and th- this is why I chose to uh, n- chose this this path." And uh, that was that's part of it. And then this is what i'd want to leave you and uh you know the letter yeah it's i think it took the 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 real threat uh you know 100 percent real threat of the ocean to really motivate me to do this because i well i put it off till the very last minute mm-hmm. and uh, you
0: know um <laughs> there must have been a moment too when when you thought you might die As part of, like, you know, as part of when you were capsized. And I wondered, like, did the letter come to mind at that point? Or, or were you, or maybe after when you're reflecting a little bit?
3: Well, we had a couple of, of events on the ocean where we got picked up and smashed around. We had Mm. about 10 days in, we got picked up by a rogue wave and thrown on, like, into the trough of a wave and an oar snapped. Wow. We, we got off the other side and I just thought, oh my God, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be here. This is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And in the moment, it was presence. Uh, when right. I had time to think about it, it was you just want to make sure that you're leaving a good legacy for, for your kids. Yeah, and, totally. and I think to a certain extent, I want my kids to live their life to the fullest. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't want them sticking uh you know st- staying safe just to stay safe you know if you have an energy inside of you I want you to go out and go for it and even if that means uh, you're in the face of death while you're doing it yeah, that's okay you know that's a life well lived mm-hmm. and you know the life not well lived is the one where we're we're too cautious and <clears throat> the irony being is that when I feared death I've you know I feared dying. And when I looked death in its eyes, it was such a fascinating feeling of, of purpose and presence and meaning. And, Mm -hmm. you know, after coming out the other side of realized I could have, you know, I could have been dead, you know, had I been trapped in this, you know, the boat capsized in the Bermuda Triangle, I was stuck in a little tiny compartment I could have been stuck swallowed water gone but here I was I was out we were uh, on the other side and it made life worth living and uh, it made me really appreciate you know the simple pleasures of life and I remember that first time coming back uh, and seeing my son he was two and a half years old I've got a two and a half year old son now and it's just special you know Mm -hmm. special to spend time with with little people and it helps you enjoy every every little moment and uh, sometimes we don't enjoy the little moments because we have an energy inside of us that needs to be expressed so our responsibility you know is to listen to that energy and express it and excise it so that we can come back and and enjoy the small things, because if we we don't excise that energy, then we'll never enjoy the small things.
0: I feel like in so many ways you presented like two visions of how we can live our life: sit around watching porn, eating donuts, or setting sail for the adventure that yeah. that calls us. You exactly. know, and uh, exactly, I know which one I want to do. Mm-hmm. And
3: uh, I'll be over it. Yeah, set sail <laughs> Later today, as long as you bring donuts for the sail. <laughs> no that's yeah that's definitely set sail yeah
1: well adam thanks so much for bringing your energy to the podcast (laughs) It's amazing (laughs) and your book as well i mean the the awesome part it this i think this conversation reflects the book really well in that you are fully willing to go into the science and neuropsychology and you're equally willing to share your stories and and to bring fun and levity and and you know provide that balance and and that's what makes the book a really interesting read and useful and tangible but also um engaging so and and that's absolutely what what we had today so thanks for making that happen and yeah it's been a pleasure
3: yeah let's let's sail
1: well, that's the episode. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you liked what you heard here, check out the website.
0: ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That's where you can subscribe, check out the show notes. If we have one request, we'd ask you to leave us a kind review and perhaps share this episode. It's not because we have fragile egos. Well. But because we want other great people like you to benefit. Speaking of great people, we have a list of people we want to thank.
1: We've got our senior technical advisor, Andy Robertson. Our media partner and web designer, Sticky Media. And, of course, our host and snack coordinator, Judy Langford. Oh, peanut butter cookies. You can continue the conversation on Instagram and Facebook at Obstacle Course Podcast and on Twitter at Obstacle Pod. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Keep pushing through those obstacles.